Amen. Let's ask now for the Lord's help as we open His Word together. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank You for the mercy that You've shown to us in making Your Word available to us. You've revealed Yourself to men. In your kind providence, you've caused that word to be written down, and we pray that as we study it together this morning, that we would hear it and receive it as truly the words of Christ. Convince us by your Spirit's work of its authenticity, of its authority. Persuade our hearts by your grace to humble ourselves before you, to trust in Christ and Christ alone for our justification, for our sanctification, for our preservation to glory. Humble us before you. Cause us to love our brothers more and more, and particularly those brothers and sisters who face persecution, who face the direct assault of our adversary. We pray that you would unite all of your people together in those common chains and common prayer, because we have a common Savior. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this will be the last time for probably quite some time that I say, well, open your Bibles and turn to Colossians. We're here at the very last verse of the epistle to the Colossians, and I've said a couple of times over this, probably the last chapter in particular, that I'm tempted to want to go back and begin at the beginning. Now that I have a grasp of the book, I want to come back and preach it right this time. But I won't do that. We're going to be moving moving on. But it's always sort of bittersweet when you come to the end of a book. I, I am, you become attached. And people ask sometimes, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Whatever I'm preaching in right now, that's my favorite one. And it's, it's been a, a joy to preach through, to see, see Christ on every, in every, every paragraph, every phrase within the Word of God here in Paul's letter to the Colossian church, and to think, as we saw early on, that, that Paul has never actually been to Colossae that we know of. Paul at that point had not met these folks face to face, and yet he loved them. They had a common bond in Christ, and he rejoiced in that. So here in this very last tiny little verse, verse 18, that'll be our entire sermon text this morning. It's three short staccato sentences, and, and it seems like maybe just this sort of formal final salutation. You know, if you're writing, we don't really write letters much anymore, but even in writing an email or something, you might, you might sign an email sincerely, or kind regards, or best wishes, or respectfully yours, or maybe somebody more familiar, most affectionately yours, or yours truly. And we think, sometimes we read the epistles in this way, like Paul's just sort of signing off at the end. And there were certainly customs in Paul's day, just as there are in ours. There were forms and structures that would have been acceptable for, for public letters. But that's not what Paul's doing here. What do these three sentences have in common? Paul says here in verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And I submit to you, this is not merely a formality, but actually a summary of the entire book of Colossians. Three short little sentences. That will serve as our outline. These short little sentences, what do they have in common? Because they seem to be sort of disjointed or not immediately connected. I, Paul, write this letter, 
this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What do those three things have in common? Here it is in short. These three short sentences perfectly capture the entire theme of Paul's epistle to the Colossian church. And it's this. God's grace has come simply and powerfully to all who believe, even to Gentiles, and that gospel of Christ and his people are under attack in every age, but Christ assures the victory. In the introduction, uh, I didn't even go back and look at the date, but it's been months ago, the the introduction to the book of Colossians. I, I call that sermon from Colossae to Conroe because there's so much here in the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to this ancient church that just resonates with who we are and where we are and what we are about as a church body and where you and I exist as individual Christians. And these these timeless truths remain. The gospel of Jesus Christ has come. Probably most, if not every one of us here, ethnically speaking, are Gentiles. We're, We're not DNA. We don't have the genetic seed of Abraham in us. And yet the gospel has come. It's come powerfully. It's bearing fruit in our lives. And yet we know both inside of us and outside of us, that very word is under attack all the time. The people of God are under attack. But Christ has assured a victory. So that's our three-point outline based on Paul's three sentences here. First of all, the word of God is attacked but never in doubt. Secondly, the people of God are persecuted but always triumph. And lastly, the grace of God alone is sufficient to preserve his saints. Let's dive in in order. The first thing we notice, when Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, he's teaching us here. He's reminding us that the word of God is always attacked. Now, where do I get that? How do I, how do I draw that conclusion from this statement? Why does Paul say this? Well, number one, it was common in Paul's day, to use a secretary. So Paul didn't physically handwrite most of his letters. I think he probably wrote Galatians with his own hand. But most of his letters, he had an amanuensis, a secretary. He would dictate it, another man would write it down. But Paul has, in a sense, taken the quill for this last verse and says, I write this with my own hand. For example, in Romans 16, 22, at the, the final greetings to the Roman church, we see this. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Well, basically, the secretary signs his own name there and gives his own personal greetings to the church at Rome, knowing that he is the one who physically wrote down what Paul had dictated. Then in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I, I think it's likely that Paul wrote the entire book of Galatians with his own hand because of the urgency of the matter and how personal this was. But secondly, Paul says this because counterfeits and forgeries were already increasingly common. There were counterfeits. There were forgeries. There were those who claimed to be Paul and would write letters to various churches. The Word of God was already being threatened. It's it's veracity. Its authenticity, its authority was already under attack. And how do we know this? Even at the time of Paul's writings, there was already, already evidence of forgeries, of fakes. And yet, we can be confident of the authenticity 
of God's word and humbly submit ourselves to the authority of King Jesus as declared in his word. So think about this. In 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Then a few verses later, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. See, there were brothers and sisters within the church at Thessalonica whose faith had been, had been rattled because they received a letter, purportedly from Paul, that said the Lord has already returned. And the word gets back to Paul that these brothers were, were understandably shaken by this. And Paul said, no, 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 don't... don't Don't be persuaded by this. Don't be quickly shaken. I didn't write that letter. Now, listen to what he says at the end of 2 Thessalonians. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what he says word for word to the Colossian church, but he adds to this in 2 Thessalonians. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Paul signed it with his own John Hancock and said, you can even compare it. Remember, he's told them, the letter from Colossae is to be sent to Laodicea. The letter from Laodicea is to come to Colossae. And Paul said, you, can, you know what my signature looks like. They've never met Paul, never seen him face to face. But they can compare his signature and know this is truly the apostolic word. This is the word of God. And you will remember that this threat of false teaching, a false word from God, has already threatened the Colossian church. In fact, that's the reason that their pastor, Epaphras, traveled a thousand miles to Rome to visit Paul in prison, because there were already these threats of false words, either had already come to Colossae, or their pastor wisely had noted the storm clouds on the horizon and knew trouble was at their gates. So if you turn back to second to first. Colossians chapter 2, look back at verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. There was already a threat of plausible arguments, another word coming to them. In that same chapter, look down at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by empty or by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. But we're not done. Look down to verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Words from the Lord, they would say. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. And then lastly, down to verse 20, 
if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, in Paul's day, and in every age, the word of God has been under attack. Isn't this what what Satan said in the garden? Hath God really said? And then when Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, three times Satan attacks him at the level of the authority of God's word. And each time Jesus responds with a true and right understanding of the word of God. And yet, even though the word of God in every age is under attack, Paul could say confidently, you have the true word of God. This is written with my own hand. You have the real deal. Now look back at Colossians 1 and verse 3. Even though the word of God is under attack, Paul could still say this with a straight face, with full confidence. In verse 3 of chapter 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So not only is Paul saying, the word that I write to you is true, but Paul is authenticating the word that their pastor preached to them too. Epaphras has traveled, met with Paul, and Paul said, what Epaphras has taught you is true, and it's bearing fruit among you. Paul's authenticating the word of God. So God in his kind providence always protects his word. Saints, we can be confident that we have the truth, that we know the truth. He guards its purity. He guarantees its efficacy. And God the Holy Spirit then bears witness with our spirit as to the authenticity and the authority of his word. Listen to how our confession of faith describes this phenomenon. In in paragraph 5, it's the very first chapter in our confession. It's the chapter on the Word of God. What do we believe about God's Word? Paragraph 5 says, We may be be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. Well, I hope that happens in every true church, where the church testifies to the the glory and grandeur and authority of God's Word. And that, that should induce us to have a high esteem for the Word of God. He goes on, and we ought to be moved and induced by the heavenliness of the matter. In other words, when we read the Word of God, we read the Scriptures, we see the the heavenly orientation of everything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The efficacy of the doctrine. We see that this is producing fruit, that these are wise and true things. The majesty of the style. When we read the Word of God, we, we, you read through the Psalms, and you're just caught up with, with the glory of the poetry and the beauty and the order that's here, the masterful literature that is the Scripture. 
the consent of all the parts. All these different authors over thousands of years, and everything agrees. And we say, well, that's, that's evidence that this is the Word of God. True enough. The full discovery the Word of God makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies of the Word of God and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. All those things are true. All those things we should put in the column as evidence in favor of this being the Word of God. But listen to this. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Ultimately, infallibly, we know this is the Word of God because the Spirit of God testifies in our heart this is true. This is the Word of God. The Word of God authenticates itself. And Paul says here in Colossians 4, in his closing remarks, I write this greeting with my own hand. I want you saints to be assured that what you have, the letter that you've, that you've read and heard, is truly the word of Christ. He says this so the people of God in Colossae could be assured that they were in fact hearing the commands of Christ. And saints, we too have this very same assurance. We have this very same assurance As you sit here this morning, you have the very same guarantee that what you are reading, what you are hearing, is the Word of God. This is not the doctrines of men. This is not self-help. This is not good ideas that men have come up with and written down. This is the very Word of God. In in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you, which is at work in you believers. So now that we've come to a full study of this wonderful epistle to the Colossian church, I hope that you will go back on your own or in your families, and and read through the letter again. Read through it carefully. Read through it devotionally. And as you do, will you believe this really is the Word of God? That Christ himself speaks to your mind and to your heart. This is really the Word of God. So will you be encouraged at what it teaches you about the nature of God? In chapters 1 and 2, Paul speaks of God's eternal purposes. He speaks some of the the wonderful works and and words of Christology, the study of who Christ is and what he's done, we find in these pages of the letter to the Colossians. We find about God's eternal purposes, his perfect wisdom in revealing the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles. For all the ages before, this mystery of Christ had been veiled, had been hidden, had been covered. And now, after Christ's coming and after his sacrifice and his resurrection from the dead and ascension on high, he commissioned his apostles, the Holy Spirit comes, and the word of God goes to Gentiles. This has been revealed now. It's been blown wide open. This is the word of God. Will you believe, saints, that the word of God here declares to you that the only path of Christian maturity 
is not all these external systems. It's not all the rules and regulations and taste not, touch not, handle not. But it's in full and complete submission to Christ. Will you believe that no system of religion and no conformity to external rules can save you or sanctify you? Will you believe that? Because this is the Word of God. Will you believe that, that severity to your body is no means of sanctification? But instead, you must depend upon the Spirit of Christ working in and through His Word to sanctify you in the truth, to grow you into maturity in Christ. This is the Word of God. The Word of God has always attacked, always been attacked, but it will always, 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 always endure and bear fruit. And it will do so not only out there, for which we rejoice, but it will do this in here, in you, and in me. But the letter to the saints of Colossae reveals it's not only the Word of God that's under attack, but God's people are also under attack. Paul reminds us of this with his next little sentence. This one little sentence, remember my chains. Remember my chains. See, by this Paul reminds us that the people of God are persecuted but will always triumph. The people of God will perse- are persecuted but will always triumph. Remember my chains. By saying this, Paul reminded the Colossian church and he reminds us that the people of God We'll face hardship, we will face difficulty, we will face attack, we will face scorn by the world, we will be chastised, we will be jailed, we will even be martyred for the sake of the gospel. But we will always get the victory. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, do not fear the one who can kill your body. And you've heard me say this, the worst an enemy can do is kill half of you and only temporarily. All they can do is kill your body, not your soul, and your body will rise again if you are in Christ. So the worst an adversary can do is kill half of you, and that only temporarily. John chapter 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. For Christ and his apostles, the persecution itself was also a means of authenticating their word. You realize that? The fact that Paul is in prison further testifies to the authority and authenticity of the word that he preached because Christ himself was persecuted for speaking the truth. In fact, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, particularly in his his second letter, Paul details the persecution that he endured as de facto evidence that he, in fact, was the true apostle rather than these so-called super-apostles. Because those who face no persecution, no hardship, the one whose message is readily accepted, when the crowds form to hear that message, it's usually evidence it's not true. And the one who's in prison, the one who's persecuted for speaking clearly and truly and faithfully, is more likely the one who's speaking the truth. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Be reminded of this. In 2 Corinthians, and, and it's one of those, um, it's kind of an enigmatic sort of, of chapter. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul begins this chapter with this statement, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. See, Paul's speaking with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek. 
And he's speaking with some hyperbole. It's almost sarcasm because he's dealing with those who have come into Corinth. They were stirring up all kinds of trouble, and they would say things like, Paul doesn't speak too good, so he can't be a real apostle. He's not eloquent. He doesn't have the pedigree that we have. He doesn't have the skin on the wall. He doesn't have the PhD. He doesn't have the, these, these fancy pedigrees. And Paul said, you, you, you people are my letters of recommendation. You are living epistles. The fruit that the gospel that I have taught you, bearing fruit in you, that's my pedigree. So he, so he says, bear with me while I kind of follow this, this line of argument. Let me speak a little foolishly here. But then you go down to verse 13. He's speaking of these, these false apostles. He calls them super apostles. Verse 13 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat... Let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say, not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. So in other words, these, these so-called super apostles have, have boasted of their own, their own qualifications, their own experience, and all the superlatives that they would claim for themselves. And Paul said, okay, I'm going I'm to act a little foolish here. I'm going to boast, but in a different way. For you gladly, verse 19, bear with fools being wise yourselves. For you bear, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. You hear, you hear the sarcasm? But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking of a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Yep, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Yep, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And he says, I'm talking like a madman. I mean, Paul recognizes this, this, is, this is incongruent with ordinary Christians speaking and talking to say, I'm a better servant of Christ. He recognizes that, but he's making a point. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger with false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things. (laughs) On top of that, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and am I not weak? Who is made to fall, and am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
You see what Paul's doing? He said, these men come and they claim to represent Christ and they've never suffered a moment. They come with all their eloquent speech and they take from you. They come with all their claims of authority and they don't know suffering. The reality, Paul says, is true disciples of Christ will suffer. God's people will suffer. It's happened in every age and it's going to happen in every age until Christ returns. So when Paul says, remember my chains, he's reminding them of the universal reality that will be true in Colossae, it's true in Conroe, it was true for Paul. If you are in Christ Jesus, this world's going to give you trouble. If you stand for the truth of the gospel, you're going to be hated, you're going to be despised, sometimes even in your own living room. Sometimes at Thanksgiving dinner, people will hate you. In your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, people will despise you because you have the audacity to say, this is true. And there will be others who will seek to be friends of the world. And they will pack a building full of, full of people. And they will speak false things, sweet things that people will long to hear and love to hear. It's the people of God. It's not just the word of God, but God's people. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Is the disciple greater than his master? See, even the writer of the Hebrews said that chastisement, that discipline, was actually a mark of true sonship. It was a mark of true sonship. And since the days of old, false prophets have come to God's people and said, peace, peace, where there is no peace. In Jeremiah chapter 23, we read this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. Paul dared to teach them. Unless you repent, you will perish eternally. And they locked him in jail. They ultimately took his head off. Saints, when we dare to say, this is the word of God, we believe it, every word of it, and we are responsible to obey it, people will despise us, people will hate us. Because they hate God, they hate his word, they hate his authority. But this message that, that teaches that God guarantees health and wealth and peace and prosperity for his people in this age, that's a false message. And it denies a fundamental reality. The fundamental reality is this. We're at war. There is no peace. No one has raised a white flag. The enemy has not put down his arms. So anyone who comes and tells you, oh, if, if you ought to be comfortable, you ought to be at ease. It's a false message. Paul understood this, and he wanted the Colossian Christians to remember this. In the book of the Revelation, this reality is described in this really vivid image, and this is Revelation chapter 12, 
You don't have to turn there. Just, just listen to this. It's Revelation 12 and verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation of the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And then a few verses later, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. See, Mark Twain would say, this is the ungetaroundable fact of the universe. We are at war. We have an adversary who is opposed not only to the word of God, but to you and to me personally, if we believe it and cling to it. Paul said, remember my chains, because my chains are your chains. My bondage is your bondage. The world will hate us. But that's not the end of the story. Christ has also promised to preserve all those who belong to him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. This is Paul's final words. This is his final testimony. One commentator I read years ago, I don't remember who it was, said that he could hear, outside of his jail cell, Paul could hear the executioner sharpening his axe. And he writes these words. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is what drove Paul. This is what what motivated him. And this is what he wanted all of these, these dear brothers and sisters whom he had never even met face to face, he wanted them motivated in the same way. The word of God is not in chains. Remember my chains, but the word of God hasn't been stopped. This is why Paul earlier commanded the Colossians to set their minds on the things of heaven. If you turn back to Colossians chapter 3, he says, if you've then, verse 1, been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's why Paul, hearing the executioner sharpening his axe, could say, I'm already dead. I'm already dead in Christ, and I've already been raised with Christ. And when he appears, I'll be with him in glory. So let him sharpen away with the axe. Remember my chains, because they're not going to hold me. Remember, you're in chains too, but they'll never hold you. 
because Christ has promised a victory to you. And Paul reminds the Colossian church of what is truly at stake in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Colossians, I mean, as, as a Roman colony, they were, they were Romans in terms of their, their ethos, their culture, their understanding of things. And one of the mantra, the chief mantra of the Roman Empire was Pax Romana. Latin phrase meaning the peace of Rome. And it wasn't just a slogan. It was a mandate. So you remember in Ephesus, when there was the riot broke out, and they accused Paul of starting a riot, and then one of the, the, the town clerk came out and said, we're brothers, brothers, we're in danger of being charged with the crime of rioting, which in Rome was a capital offense. You, you, peace at all costs was the mantra. But in contrast to this, Paul is saying, remember my chains. There is a peace of Christ that transcends, that surpasses all understanding. But we only have a foretaste of that yet. Today, we've only tasted that in part. We are at peace with God, but we are not at peace with the world. One day, when Christ returns, peace will reign. Christ will make all things new. One day there will be no earthly conflict, no imprisonment, no persecution. But that's not today. Today, Paul says, remember my chains. In response to this reality, we're commanded to remember all those who are in chains. To to pray for those. To remember our brothers and sisters in every place who are persecuted on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're not only to remember Paul's chains but the chains of all of those who are persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And we can contrast that false promise of the Pax Romana with the ever-present reality that that spiritual warfare is is a common common component to every true believer in Christ. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against unseen powers, those who wage war against our soul. And this is true on a global level, but it's also true at every, the level of every individual human heart, isn't it? Paul said that in Romans 7. There's a war that wages within us. And do you remember, saints, the, those suffering for the sake of Christ? Do you remember them in your prayers? Do you pray for them? Do you seek ways materially to support them? Do you remind yourself that in this world, you're going to have trouble. And, and, do you, and when that trouble comes, have you sort of conditioned your mind to associate trouble with something's wrong? I must be outside of God's will because I'm uncomfortable. I'm suffering. I'm having trouble. Or do you recognize the fundamental reality that Paul's teaching in those three little words, remember my chains? Because this is the reality of the Christian experience. Not the health and wealth and prosperity gospel that's being widely promoted. So the Word of God is vilified, but victorious. The people of God are persecuted, but protected. And lastly, we see in Paul's final little phrase here, just three words in the Greek, grace grace with you. Grace with you. And by, do, by saying this, he reminds us that the grace of God alone is sufficient to preserve the people of God. 
From the very beginning of his letter, Paul is concerned with Christian maturity. In chapter 1, in verse 29, he says, or verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is what drove Paul. It's what motivated Paul to see not only souls saved, but to see them come to full maturity in Christ. Come to full maturity in Christ. But the problem was there were all these other ideas pressing against the shores of Colossae saying, this is how you're mature. This is what maturity looks like. This is how you will grow. And Paul said, most of those are false ideas. They have nothing to do with the gospel. And by his closing words, grace with you, he's certainly pronouncing a precious benediction. He's pronouncing a blessing upon his Colossian brothers and sisters, but it's also a command. It's a, there's an urgency here for us to stand in the grace of God alone in the midst of the attacks that will come upon his word, in the midst of the, the attacks that will come upon us personally. How do we respond? How do we respond to that? We must take heed to the reminder that God's grace alone is sufficient for us. His grace alone is sufficient to cause us to persevere so that one day we will stand before him clothed in his righteousness, not our own. We stand in the power and under the promises of King Jesus. Turn back to to Colossians 1. Paul strikes this chord very, very early. He says in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, heard what? About the, the gospel that they have heard and how it's bearing fruit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. See, saints, there are all kinds of messages that we're just barraged with, and they come from not only outside, but they come from our own self-justifying hearts that will say, the way I'm strengthened is by my own power. The way that I grow with endurance and patience and joy is is by my own will, by my own strength. The way I'm qualified to share in in the inheritance of the saints is, is by being a better person, being a better Christian. When we forget, It is God who has done all these things. It is God's grace in Christ through his spirit and the power of the triune God that has accomplished all this. Every measure of it. So when trouble comes, and it surely will come, where do you look? In whom do you stand? We must stand in the grace of God. That's why Paul says, grace with you. This is more than a benediction. 
It's an all-consuming ethos of the Christian life. We stand by grace alone. We grow by grace alone. We will persevere by grace alone. And God in His wise providence will even send trouble to us sometimes. Do you know that? God will purposely send trouble to you. He will purposely cause turmoil in your life. He will even bring adversaries to you. He will test you so that we will be reminded of our weakness and of our need for his gracious work in us. Now here, uh, several weeks from now, I intend to start an exposition of the book of Judges. And I've been reading and studying ahead in that, and I'm struck by Judges chapter 3, how this begins. In Judges chapter 3, we read this. Judges begins, of course, with the death of Joshua. And they had gone in and conquered the promised land. But not all the enemies were destroyed. Some were left. You go, why? I mean, why did, not get, why did God not give them an absolute total victory? Why did he not eliminate every adversary from them? Listen to Judges 3. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. See, God in his infinite wisdom has said, you all need to know how to fight. I need to know how to make war with sin. If he stripped away all the adversaries, how would we know? Why would God leave some enemies in the land? Why in our day does God allow his word to be attacked? Why in our day does God allow his people to be persecuted? It will so that we will know war. We will be reminded of our prevailing weaknesses. We will be reminded of our ongoing need for one who can save us. There's an old commentator in the book of Judges, and listen to what he says. God left some of the Canaanitish nations in the land, namely that the Israelites might be inured, accustomed, to war and hardship, and thereby be preserved from sinking into sloth and luxury. And that by the neighborhood of such warlike enemies and a knowledge of the danger they were in from them, they might never be carnally secure, but stand continually on their guard and keep close to that God of whose protection and aid they had such great and constant need. That's why there were enemies remaining. That's why you still face temptation. That's why I still face temptation. Because God wants us to be reminded every single day that we stand in need of his grace. That we are dependent upon his power and not our own strength. This is every bit as true for us today, saints, as it was in the time of Paul or in the time of the judges. We will be tempted to depend upon and place ourselves, place our trust in ourselves. We will be tempted to place our trust in all manner of methods and disciplines and structures and people and leaders and systems. But we are to place our trust and stand 
by God's grace alone in Christ alone. That's why Paul, the final words, it's not just a blessing. It is a blessing, but it's not just that. It's a command. Grace with you. This is who you are and this is what you need. You are those who have received grace and every day you need more of it. Grace with you. And of course, the question comes, well, how do I get that? Where does this, where does this grace come from? Well, it comes through the work of Christ by his spirit, through his word. But God has given us means. God in his providential rule of all things ordinarily uses means. He is free to work outside, against, and above those means. But ordinarily, he uses means. The farmer may very well pray that his barn will be full. But ordinarily, what does God do? He makes him go plant a seed and till the ground and harvest the crops and preserve them. You may very well pray that God would put food on your dinner table. But he uses a means to do that. It's a J-O-B. You work, and God uses that means to provide for you. And in the same way, God gives grace to his people, and he uses the means to do that. In 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, just very briefly, Paul is exhorting young Timothy, shaping his priorities in ministry, shaping his priorities as a pastor. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 11, command and teach these things. What what things? Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Listen to this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, is Paul saying that Timothy will cause souls to be saved? Not directly. Timothy's not a high priest. He doesn't doesn't confer grace. And this word save, Paul's using it in a holistic sense. By the word of God, people will be justified. But by that same word and by the same power of the Spirit, they will also be sanctified and preserved and ultimately glorified. And Paul says, these means, the public reading of Scripture, preaching, teaching, exhortation, devote yourself, immerse yourself, pour yourself into this. And by doing that, by these means, God will be pleased to save his people and sanctify you too, Timothy. See, if we neglect the means that God has given, we have no right to expect that God will give grace to us. It is not because there is grace that the church has a power of any kind. It is God who does this, but God uses means. The farmer has no right to sit at his table and say, Oh, Lord, will you fill my barn? If he hasn't plowed his field, if he hasn't planted his seed, He hasn't prayed for rain. And we too have no right to expect that God will be gracious to us if we've not devoted ourselves to the means that he's appointed. 17th century Baptist minister Edward Mote wrote a hymn that we we sing from time to time. It's one of my favorites. Speaking of this, this grace of Christ, 
that is, that is so necessary for us to take even one step day by day. Moat says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Saints, the word of God is attacked, but it is never, ever, ever in doubt. We can be confident of its authenticity and of its authority. The people of God are persecuted. In this life, we will have trouble. But Christ has promised to preserve you, to preserve me. In him we stand, in him we rest. And the grace of God alone is sufficient to preserve his saints. Our hope should be placed nowhere else and nothing else and no one else than the grace of Christ. This is the substance of Paul's whole letter to the Colossian people, summarizing these three little sentences. May we remember, and I think it's a helpful, a helpful verse to memorize because it summarizes the whole book in those little short, short words. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you that you have given this certain, sufficient, and infallible guide to us. Thank you that we are not left to to our own devices, our own reason, our own power, our own intellect. But you've given us Christ. You've given us all of his merit. You've washed our sins away by his blood. You've taken the certificate of death that was rightly ours and you've nailed it to his cross and you've forgiven all of our sin. May we be found in him. May he be our full righteousness. May we be utterly dependent upon his grace. Amen.